0: remain standing if you would and take your Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews Hebrews chapter 9 let us begin with verse 15 just to get the context of our passage today therefore he that is Christ is the mediator of a new covenant And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For when he would have had to suffer, repeat, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's a reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word that you have given to us. And God, we, uh, we are people that easily forget. God, we are people who... You know, it can sometimes be like our kids where we're we're trying to instruct them, we're trying to encourage them to do what's right, and they're going, I know, I know, I know, I know. And you just think, no, you don't know because you, you're not doing it. And Lord, we can be like those children, and we can not hear. And so we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning. God, that we could hear, that we could see, that we could respond in faith, oh God and walk in, in the blessed, uh, glorious salvation that you've given to us. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So, have you ever had a teacher whose philosophy of teaching was something like this? They said, I'm, I'm going to tell you What I'm going to teach you, and then I'm going to teach it to you, and then I'm going to tell you what I taught you, and then we're going to review after that and see how well you did. You know, it's the idea of just that constant repetition. And and that's good, because as human beings, we need to be reminded, don't we? We don't always get it the first time. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. That's sort of the pattern he is following. He is uh, repeating the same things over to the people again. You may come here again today and you may think Pastor Rick it seems like you're preaching the same sermon just with different nuances and I'm just seeking to follow the text okay? because he understands that his readers needed to to hear this he's he's writing to people who were tempted to turn away from Christ to their former Jewish religion And, uh, and they needed to hear the gospel over and over and over again just like we need to hear it And to be reminded of it. It it sort of reminds me of a quote by J.C. Ryle in his expositions on the Gospel of Luke. He said, we love perhaps to hear the Gospel. He said, we assent to all of its statements. In other words, we agree with it, the statements that we hear in the Gospel. But he says, but what are we doing? What is the practical history of our lives? In public and in private. In the family and in the world. Can it be said of us that we not only hear Christ's sayings, but that we also do them? And and so the the author here is is hammering his point home of the vital truth of the superiority and the supremacy and the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial sins, the death for our sins. Because to turn to anything other than Christ for our salvation is spiritually fatal. You see, Christ alone has fulfilled all the Old Testament uh, types and shadows and things like that. Whether it be the priesthood or the sacrifices or all of the religious rituals, they are all fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And so in a nutshell, if our trust is in Christ alone for our salvation, then we will escape God's judgment. But if our trust is in anything else or, or anyone else, whether that be our, our own adherence to some religious system, whether it be our own works or our own righteousness or our religious heritage. If you could say, well, I grew up in the PCA. Ever since it was established, I, I was part of the PCA, whatever it is, we will die and we will come under judgment if we are trusting in anything else but Christ. So, so the issues here that the writer is talking about is of eternal significance. And, and if the repetition seems sort of tedious, or then I just encourage you, bear with it, brothers and sisters. It you know, may be that there's things here that we need to hear. It may be that there's things here that, that others need to hear as well, and you never know how God will use it. Besides, we live in a time when people need hope. Amen? We live in a time where we need hope. And, and we will never be able to share that hope until that hope is firmly fixed in our own hearts and in our own minds, and we are living according to that hope. And so this morning, I I want us really to look at three reasons why we have hope as Christians this morning. Uh, First of all, we have hope because Jesus has appeared in the presence of God for us. Jesus has appeared in the presence of God for us. We see that in verses 23 and 24. Uh, we read in verse 23 that the priest sprinkled blood on the copy of the heavenly things. He's referring here to the items in the tabernacle, and particularly the Ark of the Covenant, as the priest would come in, the high priest, once a year, and would sprinkle the blood on behalf of the people. But whatever was required for earthly things, we also read that something greater is required for heavenly things, that there's a, a greater sacrifice. sacrifices that have been made but this sort of raises the question in you know in what way must the heavenly things be purified we we read that that the heavenly things must be purified or cleansed with better sacrifices and why is a cleansing necessary I mean is heaven not perfect why is there a need for cleansing well in order to understand that uh, we have to look back at the Old Testament and to see what it is that the earthly tabernacle was referring to. And, and it takes us back to the Day of Atonement that we've been going back to week after week after week in Leviticus 16. So if you want to turn to Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 16, you'll see that the high priest took the blood of, of the goats as a sin offering for the people, and they sprinkled it on the altar. But, but why did they do that? Well, if you look at Leviticus 16, 16, it says this. Thus he, that is the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And then he goes on, he says, And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And then skip down to verse 18. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. You see that phrase over and over and over, the uncleanness of the people, the uncleanness of the people. You see the need for purification of the earthly things had to do with its association with sinful people. Israel was sinful and so the cleansing with blood made the things in the holy place fit for continued interaction between God and his people and in the same way the heavenly tabernacle was made accessible to the people of God by Christ's blood and his sacrificial death and so that the heavenly things are purified in conjunction with the purification of God's people and so Christ You know, it's interesting, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but he is the first person to ever enter in fully to the presence of God. I think we think of of Christ just returning as the Son of God, and of course he goes back to heaven because he's God, but he's still fully man. And so he's the first man to enter fully into the presence of God. And so Jesus applied his blood to the heavenly places to provide us with a relationship with God. Uh, the heavenly things had to be cleansed because we were going to be there. And, And we were not clean. We were sinful. And so Christ's blood has cleansed the heavenlies, and he stands guard over heaven, not to keep us out, but to make you clean so that you can enter in and enjoy that fellowship with God. And that's why the author states in verse 24, he says, in the presence of God on our behalf. And so Jesus is in the presence of God. Now, he's he's uh, representing us. He's on our side, in essence. And, and this act paves the way for God's people to enter into his presence. Now, look in verse 24. We also read that Christ has entered. Now, the tense of that verb indicates that Christ has entered and he's never left the presence of God. And so his presence before God is continuous and eternal. Therefore we are forever allowed into the presence of God as well. We have that permanent access to the very throne of, of grace. And, and we see that sort of emphatically being demonstrated eh, on, when Christ died on the cross and the curtain of the holies was ripped in two from the top to the bottom. And so the point I want us to see is, is that God will never reject us if Christ represents us. God will never reject us as Christ represents us. Our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ that that appears in the presence of God and continues to to be there so that we might come into his presence. Brothers and sisters, we we ought not to take this lightly. I mean, I think we we have been recipients of God's blessings so much we just begin to take it for granted. Why can we gather here this morning? Why? only because of the blood of Jesus Christ. This week, when you open your Bible and you sit down in your quiet place and you pray to God and you pour out your heart and and, and the things that are, are in your life that you want to bring to the Lord, you can do that because Jesus has provided a way for you. You can gather as a family and worship the Lord and exalt His name only because Jesus has made that possible. And so let our hearts be stirred by that. Um, As many of you know, J.I. Packer went home to be with the Lord this week, so I have to use the J.I. Packer quote in my sermon. Uh, He said, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, then most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. You see, once we realize that we're not here just to have families or to work or to make a difference or to be a gospel witness, but really the reason we are here is the same reason that God put Adam and Eve in the garden, that he might fellowship with them, that he might have a relationship. They might have a relationship with him and he would have a relationship with them. And we can know God, and that's why he has placed us here. And it's interesting that as we get to know God and as we spend time in his presence, it is amazing how all of the things in our life that seem so important, it's not that they go away, but they, they they just sort of fall into the right order and in the right place. The worry that we have begins to go away. The the undecisiveness about the future and the fears that can go along with that begin to to sort of uh, go away like a mist because we know that God is the one that holds the future. And as we know Him and we abide in Him, then, then the peace and the joy and the rejoicing Uh, comes to our hearts and understand that all of that is possible only because Jesus Christ stands in the presence of God and he has made it possible for us to to know the Lord. So there is great hope because Christ is in heaven uh, before us. But we also have hope because Jesus offered himself for us once for all. And that's what we see in verses 25 through the first part of 28. The Old Testament high priest uh, sacrifices were made over and over repeatedly, year after year after year. Uh, But it's also worth noting that when they offered sacrifice, they offered things that really cost them nothing. I mean, if you think about the tabernacle and how they were to be a picture into God's presence, how we could approach God and the Old Testament people of God learned things like they needed a mediator they needed somebody to represent them and they had the high priest that would stand uh, between the people and God and would be that mediator but one of the things that they never learned in the tabernacle was, was the reality that the priest actually offered himself as a sacrifice the priest in the Old Testament always offered other sacrifices some other animal gave their life but when Jesus Christ came, He introduced something new in essence and showed that actually Himself as the high priest, He offered His own life. And so, that's why verse 25 says that the high priest came with blood, not their own. Um, but Christ, He offered Himself and once for all. As the perfect Son of God, Jesus' sacrifice was enough, as it says in verse 28, to bear the of many. Now, that's, that's beautiful. Uh, if, you, if you think about it, I think for, for most of us who have a home, uh, we are making payments on that home, right? We had to take out credit to buy that home because we did not have sufficient income just to put down cash on the barrel, right? Um, because it costs a little bit more than what we made. And so we had to make, we make those payments month in, month out. We might even accelerate those to try to get it paid off quicker, but we're trying to get that paid off so that we can say, it's mine. I've actually, I actually possess that which I uh, was seeking to possess, and that is the title to my home. But Christ, when he died for us, he didn't make payments. He put down cash from the barrel. He said, my sacrifice is sufficient. It actually accomplishes that which I uh, desire. And, and if his sacrifice was not sufficient, then as we read in verse 26, he would have had to suffer repeatedly, since the foundation of the world. He would have had to be like the Old Testament sacrifices, but that wasn't what Christ's sacrifice was about. Christ's sacrifice is not a perpetual sacrifice, but a once-for-all sacrifice. And this is important for us to remember. And unfortunately, some religious groups have ignored this and instituted a perpetual re-crucifixion of Christ in the form of the Roman Catholic Mass, for example. In their perpetual Eucharist, the crucifixion is reenacted each time the, the Catholic Church is gathered. But this practice is, is, is unbiblical and con- contradictory to, to the passage that we have before us. Instead, the one-time sacrifice of Christ has accomplished something amazing. Jesus has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen? Amen. That's good news. But we not, need to not just throw stones at others and say this is how they are not understanding this. Because even as evangelical Christians, we wrestle uh, to seek to, to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and we wrestle as well. And there's great implications for our spiritual lives. It's a very common experience today for, for Christians to feel the ongoing need to deal with the guilt of their sin. And, and oftentimes people will come to faith in Jesus Christ and they'll pledge faith to Him, to serve Him, swearing to, to hate sin and to love Jesus. And, and they'll make a real big point about, I really mean this. This is a decision that I'm making. And, and there'll be much joy in their Christian life early on. There's peace. Uh, but soon, as a Christian, they realize that they still must struggle with sin. And so they're battling with sin. And of course, right there. To accuse them and to point out their sins and and to, to beat them over the head with their sins. And, and of course, you know, now being a Christian, before they were a Christian, they didn't think much about God and his judgment. But now as a, as a Christian, they know that God judges sin. And, and as Satan is accusing them of their sin, and they very much feel the weight of that sin. And, and they feel the guilt and, and they're rustling. And, and they over and over again seek forgiveness and trying to live more faithfully. And believe it or not, some Christians go to, through their whole life seeking a conversion that will finally stick. a One that will finally stick. Seeking an experience that will do the job. Seeking the passion that will cleanse them once for all. But we must realize that if we are saved by our faith, then our salvation would not be a once-for-all salvation because our faith is not reliable or permanent. We wax and wane in our faith, right? Sometimes our faith is strong. Sometimes our faith is very weak. And so once-for-all is not an expression that we use whenever it comes to our faith or our repentance. Uh, because, I hate to tell you this, but, you know, the sin you committed this morning is not the last sin that you're going to commit. You know, the, 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 your experience and your struggle with doubt that you have this week, that's not going to be the last time that you're going to struggle with doubt and, and worry. But the good news of the gospel is is that you are not saved by your faith, but by Christ. Yes, you must receive Christ by faith, but it's not upon your faith that salvation relies, but it's upon Him. His death saves you, and that is once and for all his entry into heaven to to minister for you there saves you it upholds your weak and wavering faith and that is once and for all and what's not once and for all and what's not once and for all for us is once and for all for him and that's where we can have peace and we can have joy and we can have hope when satan comes to beat us over the head with our sins and constantly be reminding and condemning us and judging us, and we know that he's right, and yet we cannot look and say, "Do I have enough faith?" But we need to look to Christ and say, and realize that he is our once for all sacrifice. And if your sin has indeed been put away, as we read in verse twenty-six, then how can you be held accountable for those same sins as a at a later point in time? You see, to put away something. Is, is a very technical term in the sense of a jewelry in a courtroom. Okay, and, and if it's been, your sins have been put away, as one commentator described it, he says, sin's consequences are absorbed by Christ and thereby removed from us. Its force is nullified. This nullification, moreover, is comprehensive. It covers sin in its totality, whether it's past, present, or or future. And this means that when Christ died, He paid the penalty for the sins of all his elect, both before and after the cross. On earth whose sins have been put away by Christ, who will have to one day deal with those same sins themselves. It's taken care of. Now, why does the finished one-time work of Christ really matter that much? Well, because it says in verse 27, we too will die and face judgment one day. This is true of every single person. We read verse 27. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes what? Judgment. we will stand before God in judgment. Now, I don't have the time to get into this, but just I want to mention a couple of things. These verses refute a couple of things. First of all, reincarnation. People don't die and come back another life over and over and over again. We die once and then comes judgment. These verses also refute the idea that people get a second chance to receive Christ. Brothers and sisters, death is final. And then there is judgment. So every person that dies will face the judgment of God. And not only that, but we notice that this death is appointed for man. In other words, God is the one who appoints how long we'll live on this earth. He is the one that's in control of the lifespan of all his created beings. Not a world pandemic. That's not what determines when we die. It's not even the evil intent of a man who snuffs out a person's life. That's not what determines when they die. It is God. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm one thirty nine sixteen. 16, um, it says, Your eyes, this is God's eyes, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed from me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, when I was just a little baby in my mother's womb, before I was even born, all the days that I would live here on this this earth were all written out by God because He is the one who appoints man to live or to die. So while we might look at some deaths and, and think that they seem accidental to God, they are not. As Job reminds us, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Uh, Our lives are are in the Lord's hands. And so, as, as you hear that this morning, my question for you is, knowing that you don't know how long you're going to live, and that after death comes judgment, are you ready to face God? Are you ready to stand before Him in judgment for the life that you have lived? You might be listening this morning, and you might be thinking, well... You know, I'm going to sort of sow my wild oats and I'm going to sort of live the way I want to live my life. And then as I get older, you know, I'll get serious with God. And and, and I'll do business with God. But right now, I'm good. I'm going to live the way I want to live. But you don't know how long you're going to live. Only God knows. I, I uh, knew of a preacher that was uh, preaching in the pulpit just like I'm doing this morning. And he was talking about the glories of heaven. And he said, I can't wait till I can be in heaven. And he stretched out his arms, and he dropped dead just like that. Dead before they got to him in the pulpit. None of us knows how long we have here upon this earth. Uh, If any of you have uh, received an email from me, you may have noticed a quote that I put at the bottom of every one of my emails. It's a quote by Thomas Manton. It says, a man's greatest care should be for that place where he lives longest. Therefore, eternity should be his scope. That should be our focus. We just live here on this earth 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years, maybe a little bit longer. But after this, it's for all eternity. All eternity in heaven with God or all eternity in heaven or in hell separated from God. in eternal torment. You see, delay in trusting Christ could be eternally fatal. To refuse the cross as the instrument of salvation is to choose it as the instrument of judgment. Jesus uh, said in John chapter 12, verse 48, he goes, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. And if you were hearing my voice today and you were saying, yeah, I don't know about this God thing. You know, it could be that when you stand before God on Judgment Day, that this very sermon will come back to your mind and will be reminding you of, of the, the call that God gave you to come to Him. And yet you will be haunted with the fact that you have said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And so that's why the Bible urgently warns us now is the day of salvation. Only Christ can save you from, from the judgment to come. Now, as we look at verse 27, there is a challenge there for us that I just like I just laid out before you. Examine your life and, and to see where you are. But we also need to be careful not to separate verse 27 and verse 28. Those two really go together. And, and as evangelicals, we know verse 27 very well and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, you'll hear Christians quote that all the time. However, it's not it's it's not complete because verse twenty seven and twenty eight go together, and that brings us to our third point: that our hope is is that Jesus returned for us. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, just as surely as judgment follows death, so surely will Christ return to finally save his own people, those who are eagerly waiting to see him. You would almost expect the writer to say, you know, in the same way that death comes and then judgment, so Christ will return and there will be judgment. But he doesn't. He said... Instead, Christ will come back, and and He will He will um, to um, to save us is what He will do. You see, Christ will not come, but in not excuse me, Christ will come, but not in because the issue of sin has always already been dealt with for His people in His first coming. Uh, so the author writes that Christ has already been offered once to bear the sins of many. Now, who are the many that he's talking about? Well, it's those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Now, that phrase there, eagerly waiting for him, really takes us back to the Day of Atonement. When On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of the goat after taking the blood of the bull for his own sins. He would go into the holy place, and then the holy of holies... And he would sprinkle that blood. And, and as, as he did, he wasn't in there a long time, but it was a very tense moment for the people. Because as the high priest walked in, they would uh, most likely think, would he perform the ritual correctly? Would God accept the sacrifice of the blood to atone for the sins of the people again this year? And so they're watching and they're waiting eagerly for the high priest to return. And if he walked back out of the Holy of Holies and came out with the people, then they would know that God had accepted that sacrifice. And so they would rejoice. And you see, when Jesus returns, we who eagerly await his return will be rewarded with the intimate knowledge of our position in Christ, knowing that our sins are forgiven and we are accepted by God those who know that Christ's superior sacrifice was intended for their justification, therefore eagerly pray for Christ's return. Do we not? Uh, it's, it's so easy, brothers and sisters, I think, for us to be tied to the things of this world. And we forget to pray. Pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And yet, is that not our prayer as his people? To shed the things of this earth, to shed the worries and the trials and the difficulties and the struggle with sin and all those things. And look forward to the time when Christ would return and we could come and to be with him. Do you eagerly await the coming of our Lord? You know, Paul, when he was about to be martyred, uh, wrote these words in Second Timothy 4.8. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, he he had his eyes upon the heavenly reward that he would receive. If because Jesus is your Savior, you love his appearing, then he's not going to be judging you, but as the righteous judge, he will award you the crown of righteousness. And so Jesus will come a second time to bring us home. Christians, are we eagerly awaiting for Christ's return? Are we waiting? If not, what is it that has our hearts? What is it that we have given ourselves over to that we don't have such anticipation uh, for seeing the Lord Jesus Christ come and return? close with a couple quotes by J.I. Packer and a challenge to us this morning. J.I. Packer said, like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them. And that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. Is that not what we look forward to? That we have that sense of, of, of not only knowing God, but His favor as well. And for the Christian, we have hope because we know that His favor is upon us because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because of His presence in heaven, His once-for-all sacrifice, and the fact that He will return one day to show us that our sins are forgiven. You see, uh, Packer says, readiness to die is the first step in learning to live. And I wonder sometimes as Christians if if our struggle and our lack of hope sometimes is because of our lack of readiness to die. And so therefore we don't have we've not taken that first step in really learning how it is to live, to live our lives here upon this earth in light of eternity, not for the things of this earth, not to get the things done on earth to do list, not to meet the goals, our 5, 10, 20-year goals. But to walk in fellowship with God and Him with us, to know Him. What joy that is and what hope we have as Christians. Brothers and sisters, I want us just to take a moment and just to bow our heads and to think about that hope. And there may have been things in your life that's robbed you of that hope that is seeking to chip away and distract you from the hope you have. And if so, I just encourage you to take a few minutes and to repent of those sins and ask God's forgiveness and to put your minds and your hearts on Christ, who is your one and only hope. Please bow with me. Jesus is our rock. We come to you today knowing that our hope is secure in you. That we are immovable as long as we are standing in you. And Lord, we have read many things in the news, on social media. You know, all these things about what's next in 2020. You know, as if uh, the things that happen in the news headlines are the things that cause us to to be tossed to and fro. Oh, they do affect us. But Lord, they don't have to rock our world. We know that we can stand firm in you and that the hope that we have in you is not tied to this world. And so therefore, it doesn't matter. Even if the world is... is, uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 46, you know, even if the world just caves in and, and uh, you know it's, it's it's destroyed, our hope is in you. And so we pray, Lord, as we as we leave this place, that we would do so confidently, Lord. Just thinking about the things that are shared in our passage today, and Lord, in our conversations this week, I pray that that hope would be evident to those that we speak to, that they would see in us that we are a peculiar people. We're not shaken by the things of this life. Lord, we are not uh, uh, We are not worried, we are not fretful, but actually we are people who are rejoicing. Not, not in the sin and, and the challenges of, of the circumstances of our lives. Many of these things, God, are, are, are heartbreaking. But Lord, we just thank you that uh, they are all under your sovereign care. And pray, Lord God, that that would be uh, evident in your church. And not just our church, but your church at large as well. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.